Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug abuse, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Larry Rennie Thomas was in his classroom handing out his bio sheet to students as a way to introduce himself when the old woman stopped him to ask about jazz. It was 1988 in Wilmington, North Carolina, and Larry had taken a position teaching adult night classes for Shaw University. He'd noticed the woman earlier, sitting in on the first day of his Western Civilization course. She was maybe in her 60s, obviously intelligent, with a streetwise air about her. He liked how she snickered when students in the class disagreed with him. When Larry approached her with his bio sheet, which mentioned that he also moonlighted as a jazz radio announcer, she remarked that she'd always loved jazz. The woman's accent was a curious mix of New York brash and Southern drawl. She added that her husband was even a jazz musician. He asked her what her husband's name was, and she smiled as she responded, Lee, Lee Morgan. Larry stared at her in shock. He hadn't just met Lee Morgan's wife, he'd also met Lee's killer. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll discuss Lee Morgan's rise to the upper echelons of American jazz, then his rapid fall into drug addiction. We'll also see how a codependent relationship with Helen Morgan saved Lee's life and sealed his fate. Next week, we'll follow the final showdown between Lee and Helen. We'll also talk about the fallout from that night at Slug Saloon and how it changed American music forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. We don't know much about Helen Morgan and her life before she met Lee. A lot of the record comes from Helen herself, when Larry Rennie Thomas interviewed her about her life in February of 1996. But according to Helen, from the beginning, she always felt she had to fight for what she wanted. She was born Helen Moore in 1926 on a small farm near Shalote, North Carolina. She never liked the rural life. She hated the endless chores of the farm. When she was big enough, she would leave the farm and go off on her own. But from an early age, Helen learned that things don't always work out as planned. In 1939, when Helen was only 13 years old, she had her first child. Another arrived the next year. It's unclear what circumstances Helen had her children under, but it's likely that she suffered from some form of coercion and was possibly even forced into a relationship. Before I continue with her psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the human rights organization Equality Now, girls who marry at a young age are more likely to develop symptoms related to post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Helen wasn't married, but at 13, she was a mother. It's possible she was expected to take on the role of an adult woman as well. In another study conducted in 2011, researchers found that girls married before 18 have a higher risk of developing anxiety and even bipolar disorder. These girls are also at risk of having substance abuse problems later in life. At 13, Helen's body was also not physically ready to have a child. Early pregnancies often have complications threatening both the mother and the baby. Girls aged 15 to 19 are more likely to experience delivery complications and stillbirths, and newborn deaths are 50% more likely to occur than for women who give birth older than 20 years old. Unable to raise her children, probably because she was still a child herself, Helen left them with her grandparents on the farm. In 1941, Helen moved to the city of Wilmington, North Carolina, to live with her mother looking for a fresh start. By 1943, 17-year-old Helen and her mother had carved out a life for themselves in the city. That year, Helen met her first husband, a 39-year-old bootlegger. Helen didn't seem to care about the 22-year age gap. She claimed she fell in love with the man when she first saw how much cash he counted after a night's haul. As she put it, he took a liking to me and I took a liking to the money. But years later, one of Helen's grown sons claimed the official explanation was wrong. According to him, Helen said that she killed the bootlegger. She stabbed him in the back, 
perhaps because he abused her. Even at that young age, Helen had grown into a tough woman. She was a talker and a charmer, but sharp when she needed to be. If Helen was in another abusive situation, maybe she felt forced to take extreme action. Domestic violence is incredibly dangerous, especially to people who identify as female. According to a study published in 2021, one in four American women have experienced domestic violence compared to one in 10 American men. In some cases, someone may believe their only recourse is to kill their abuser. In many instances of abuse, the violence can get so bad that a survivor may convince themselves it's kill or be killed. Remember, Helen's marriage to the smuggler came after what was also probably one or more abusive relationships back on the farm. Helen's previous partner most likely coerced her into having two children while still a kid herself. And domestic abuse can stay with a person long after their physical bruises fade. Many people who have suffered from abuse can experience depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and PTSD. Still, it's difficult to determine whether Helen ever retaliated against the bootlegger. Without more to go on, it's impossible to know which story is true. And back in 1945, the bootlegger's family didn't see a cause for alarm. After his funeral in Wilmington, her late husband's relative took Helen back with them to New York City. She only meant to visit for two weeks. She stayed for 30 years. In the city, Helen quickly immersed herself in the jazz community, making friends at clubs. But she found that jazz was always shadowed by a hidden drug culture. Many performers took heroin or even cocaine. Some used it to spark creativity, others to stay up at night, and others just to have a good time. But Helen wasn't tempted by drugs. And in that, there was opportunity. By 1946, she was making money as a runner, transporting drugs across the city. The dealers trusted her because she wouldn't partake herself. Traveling between the jazz clubs and the New York underworld, Helen further cultivated her tough persona to protect herself. She could be kind, generous, joyous even, but always underneath, she had that edge. And with that combination, Helen thrived. Just a hundred miles away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, destiny was waiting for Helen in the form of Lee Morgan. Edward Lee Morgan was born the youngest of four kids on July 10, 1938. His parents were both black Southerners who had emigrated to the city after World War I, searching for opportunities. Lee's father Otto was a veteran and found work at a wool factory. His mother Nettie was a domestic worker. In the evenings, Nettie not only cooked dinner for her four children, but for the neighborhood kids too. And Nettie's table quickly became a gathering place for another crowd, the jazz musicians of Philadelphia. Every artist who passed through the city stopped by the Morgans for a bite. Lee's siblings fostered his interest in jazz. 
His sister Ernestine and brother Bubby brought home records and let preteen Lee tag along to concerts at the black venues in town. Lee quickly became entranced by the sound of players like Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, and Dizzy Gillespie. They were all vanguards of bebop, a new style of jazz that was popular starting in the late 40s. This was a departure from the big band genre that had dominated before. Musicians blended rhythm and blues elements with jazz and allowed for riffing and improvisation. In 1951, Ernestine and Bubby pulled their resources to buy Lee his own trumpet for his 13th birthday. It was a Martin, the same brand used by Miles and Dizzy. Lee quickly became obsessive about his burgeoning talent. He'd often practice for four or five hours a day, following scale books or listening to jazz records. He knew almost instinctively that this was a language he could understand if he could just learn to speak it naturally, to improvise and compose in real time, then that would be all he'd ever need. Lee took classical lessons, learning trumpet technique and a clear open tone he brought to his own jazz music. At the same time, he started studying with Clifford Brown, an incredibly talented jazz trumpeter that many had hailed as the new master. As Lee grew in age and talent, he started to perk the ears of more established players. When he graduated high school in 1956, he found steady work for a season gigging in Philadelphia, Atlantic City, and New Jersey. But at the end of summer during that year, opportunity came knocking on Lee's door. Dizzy Gillespie wanted Lee to audition for his big band. Babyface Lee hit the ground running becoming a featured soloist in Dizzy's band. Every night, audiences saw a battle between the old and new guard as Dizzy and Lee challenged each other in back-and-forth solos. And Lee quickly caught the attention of the New York jazz scene. Within days of debuting with Dizzy, Lee signed a contract with Blue Note Records. And on November 4th, Lee recorded his first album. But trouble brewed on the horizon after Elvis Presley burst onto the scene in 1956 with Heartbreak Hotel, a musical reckoning washed over America. White conservative communities were scared that rock and roll would encourage immorality and promiscuity. So they began banning various types of music, including jazz. Eventually, Dizzy broke up his big band, but Lee landed on his feet in the summer of 1958, he joined Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Under the militaristic Blakey, the group famously molded talented youngsters into jazz legends. But music wasn't Blakey's only specialty. And when he took Lee under his wing, he introduced him to a new, exciting part of urban jazz culture, heroin. Coming up, Lee struggles with musical genius and addiction. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? 
I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. After years of hustling, by around 1945, Helen Morgan had carved out a life for herself in New York City. She secured a legitimate job as an operator at a telephone answering service and rented an apartment on 53rd Street. Though Helen was a tough customer when she had to be, she'd always had a gift for connection. She was a talker and found it easy to fit in most places. Her neighbor recalled that she'd walk around the neighborhood looking like a picture from a fashion magazine, wearing mod A-line dresses and bright colors. On Fridays, she'd go home from work to change into something less flashy, then go out on the street. More often than not, she joined the older men playing craps on the sidewalk, fitting in with them as easily as she did the girls at her office. Helen quickly set down roots for herself at Birdland, a legendary nearby jazz venue. Helen got to know the performers and the other fans. Soon enough, she was being invited to private jam sessions and after-hours parties. Like Nettie Morgan in Philadelphia, Helen's apartment on 53rd Street became a gathering place for jazz musicians. She developed a reputation as a godmother to needy artists. Late at night, After the performance wrapped at Birdland or the Uptown Jazz Clubs, people of all walks of life would gather at Helen's place to get a bite to eat and listen to her jazz records. While Helen was the life of the party on 53rd Street, Lee Morgan was partying too, in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, where Blue Note Records recorded the Jazz Messengers. In 1958, 20-year-old Lee and his fellow Jazz Messengers were a tight-knit group. Art Blakey had a habit of recruiting new up-and-comers for the Messengers, so it became a proving ground for the next generation of jazz. It was all about the style for these young men, newly independent with money in their pockets. They competed with each other, trying to see who had the freshest hairstyle, the snappiest clothes, the prettiest girl. Some of them even used to race their cars in Central Park at night to see who was the fastest. But the culture of the messengers was tied tightly to drugs. The band's leader, 39-year-old Art Blakey, was a lifelong heroin addict, and he encouraged opioid use in his band. Anyone who takes an opioid like heroin can become addicted. Cravings for opioids affect people on both the physical and neurological levels, and drugs like heroin have an insidious way of hooking people. Like all opioids, 
taking heroin leads to an instant release of endorphins, which are neurotransmitters that make you feel good. Endorphins can dull or entirely mask pain, which is why doctors use some opioids as painkillers. They also create a feeling of pleasure. The combination of these two experiences creates the high that heroin users feel when they ingest the drug. But when you continually use heroin, your body slows its release of endorphins. So to get the same high, you're forced to take more heroin. And the moment your body no longer has heroin in its system, it immediately enters withdrawal. Common symptoms can include physical illness like nausea and stomach cramps, problems with breathing and motor function, and psychological issues like depression and anxiety. So many addicts feel forced to keep taking heroin just to stop the terrible effects of withdrawal. Addiction is a vicious disease, which can be incredibly hard to break free from alone. And heroin addiction in particular was a massive part of the jazz world. It seemed like everyone was taking dope. Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Chet Baker, Billie Holiday. According to addiction researcher Maxim W. Furick, heroin became popular among the jazz community for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was widely available thanks to the Italian-American mafia. Their product flooded the streets, especially in the predominantly black neighborhood of Harlem. But more importantly, heroin provided relief for a lot of issues in jazz musicians' lives. It masked the pain of standing and playing for long hours, doing small, repetitive movements. It made players feel like they could handle an energetic, hours-long gig or recording session. And since most jazz musicians were Black, many were coping with the harsh realities of racist society. Though they were masters at their craft, they were confined and humiliated by segregation and a lack of equal rights. They were continuously placed in the role of entertaining white society without getting respect or recognition for their work. Some venues that employed black jazz musicians wouldn't even allow black audience members. And they had to be constantly on their guard against most music labels, managers, and club promoters. Many would seize the chance to underpay or otherwise exploit the artists, making them money. So heroin became popular. In Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, it was a rite of passage. Art was a functioning addict, meaning he was able to manage his addiction alongside his career. But his young protégés that couldn't handle the drugs were quickly dismissed from the messengers. Lee struggled with his addiction to heroin in the late 1950s and early 1960s. He had triumphs like playing live with the messengers, composing music, and cutting more records. But increasingly, everything in his life became dedicated to obtaining more drugs. One time, Lee showed up to a messenger's rehearsal with a large bandage wrapped around his head. When his friends asked what happened, he shrugged their concern off, claiming it was an accident. But in reality, he'd overdosed. He got high in his apartment and fell onto the steaming radiator with the hot metal pressed against the right side of his head. The radiator burned off all of his hair where it touched him 
and even some of his skin. Lee was left with a scar on his scalp, which he even changed his hairstyle to hide. Another time, Lee showed up to rehearsal wearing slippers. He'd pawned his real shoes so he could buy drugs. Though he still acted like a high-flying star, Lee knew he was on a downward slide. When he was sober, he was a brilliant trumpet player, but it was getting harder for him to stay clean. He missed rehearsals and gigs and couldn't play even if he did show up. At some point in the summer of 1961, Art finally fired Lee from the Jazz Messengers. He drifted back to Philadelphia and spent two years hustling and feeding his heroin addiction. Finally, in 1963, he knew if he wanted to play again, he needed to take drastic action. Lee sought treatment at the narcotics farm, a government rehab in Kentucky favored by celebrities. Though he didn't get completely clean at the farm, when Lee was released a few months later, he felt able to start playing jazz again. And with his tentative sobriety, he was able to record one of the most influential jazz songs of the 20th century. On December 21st, 1963, 25-year-old Lee felt nervous as he listened to his band tuning their instruments. He was back in the studio, leading a recording session for Blue Note for the first time in a while. The session had gone well so far, and they'd been able to cut a few tracks, but the music had hit a lull. They still had space to fill on the album, but no material to record. Lee went over trumpet fingerings and saxophone harmonies in his mind. He nodded his head to a driving rhythm only he could hear. He thought he had something. It was as if God himself was arranging the music inside Lee's head. Lee waved to his bandmates and disappeared to the bathroom. The clock ticked on the wall. With every minute that passed, his fellow musicians became more concerned. They were afraid that Lee was shooting up in the bathroom and would return too high to play if he wasn't passed out already. But when Lee burst out of the bathroom, he held a roll of toilet paper high in his hand. He'd written a blues piece to finish out the session, which he called The Sidewinder. When the album, also called The Sidewinder, was released in 1964, it became a runaway hit. Though jazz was losing its popularity in the mainstream to rock and roll acts, the title track somehow hit number 25 on the pop charts. The album became the best-selling LP Blue Note had ever produced, cementing both the label and Lee Morgan as jazz legends. But its success still wasn't quite enough to save Lee. Before long, he was back to his old habit. Heroin still had its hooks in him. When someone uses heroin, it rewires their brain. According to the American Addiction Centers, recovering addicts can feel long-term mental health effects for years after getting clean. Even external stressors that aren't drugs can cue the brain's craving for heroin. This is why it's easy for people to relapse. Lee drifted after the Sidewinder, living off the money from the album. And when that gave out, he started pawning his things, his clothes, his records, even his horn. By 1967, 
he'd hit rock bottom. Sleeping in the gutter outside of Birdland, the jazz club he used to headline. That's when Lee finally met his destiny, Helen Moore. Up next, Helen puts Lee back on top. Now, back to the story. By 1967, Helen Moore had become the godmother of jazz in New York City. Not only was her 53rd Street apartment the place where all the musicians gathered, but everyone was welcome at Helen's home and Helen's table. A hungry musician could ask for a snack at her parties and end up with a Thanksgiving feast. Turkey, beans, collard greens, even pie or cobbler for dessert. Likely Morgan's mother did in Philadelphia, Helen expressed her love by opening her home. She needed to take care of people. One night in 1967, a knock came at Helen Moore's door. This happened often. Musicians dealing with addictions, down on their luck, or even just looking for a hot meal, knew Helen's place was where to go. That night, Helen opened the door to find her friend, Benny Green, a trombone player. Standing behind him, shivering in a thin jacket, was a rough-looking young man. Benny introduced them. This was his friend, Lee Morgan. From the moment Helen first set eyes on Lee, she knew she had to take care of him. She asked him why he was only wearing a jacket. Where was his coat? It was gone. He'd pawned it for drug money. When Helen learned he was a trumpeter, she asked him where his instrument was. He told her that he'd pawned that too. Helen thought it was unacceptable. A trumpeter without his horn was like a carpenter without his tools. So she stood up and told Lee to come with her. They were going to get his things back. That meeting was the blueprint for the next five years. If Lee needed help with something, Helen would get it done, fast. Helen was a woman who was beloved by the jazz community and quick to offer a kindness to someone in need. But by her own account, she was no Mother Teresa. In one interview, she told Larry Rennie Thomas, I will not sit here and tell you that I was nice because I was not. I was the one who will cut you. I was sharp. And Helen was going to use her street smarts to get Lee back on top. Initially, there was a maternal heir to Helen and Lee's relationship. And to free him from his addiction, she took over the role of devoted caretaker. Then they became lovers. Though they were never married, she began introducing herself as Lee's wife, even though Helen was 12 years older than Lee. Helen knew getting Lee his horn back was a symbolic gesture. If he really wanted to perform again, he needed to get clean. He still had friends in the jazz community who remembered his genius, but he became so notorious for his addiction that no one wanted to take the risk of booking him. So in 1968, Helen paid to send Lee through an outpatient rehab program. She and Lee also moved to the Bronx together to be closer to Lee's clinic. Lee had been to rehab before, but found it hard to kick the habit for good. This time, with Helen supporting him, 
he was able to make the switch to methadone. Methadone is a synthetic drug that hits the same receptors in the brain that opioids do. Doctors began using it as a treatment for heroin addiction in the 1960s, as it helped opioid addicts recover by reducing withdrawal symptoms. Though it's slower acting than other opioids, methadone can still become addictive. So usually, it's controlled by doctors and given out in specific doses. But Lee Morgan didn't have that experience. According to his friends, he kept an entire refrigerator full of vials of methadone. So in many ways, Lee had just traded one addiction for another. Despite Lee's dependence on methadone, he found himself able to focus on music once more. And once he finished his outpatient rehab, he found his friends waiting for him. Everybody wanted to play with the great Lee Morgan now that he was supposedly clean. And Helen took on a new role, mother, lover, and now manager. Just like she had supported Lee through treatment, she now controlled almost every aspect of his professional life. Lee put a band together and ran practice, but Helen booked the gigs, collected money from the venues, and paid the band. She negotiated contracts, she sat in on rehearsals. She even carried Lee's trumpet case for him. Now that Lee was functioning, her caretaking morphed into an obsession. What had formerly been a caring motherly relationship twisted into something like codependency. She wouldn't even leave Lee alone for a second. She'd wait until he fell asleep at the apartment to go and run any errands for herself. Codependency is not a mental health disorder, but it describes a specific type of toxic relationship. According to medical writer Jennifer Berry, in a codependent relationship, one partner's life revolves entirely around pleasing and supporting the other person. And for many, this manifests into trying to save their partner from addiction, mental issues, or even their own behaviors. Codependent people often throw all their energy into their partner. They derive their only sense of worth or joy in making the other person happy and have almost no interest outside the relationship. This sounds like a significant shift for Helen, who was formerly incredibly independent. But in truth, she'd been acting as a devoted caretaker to the New York jazz community for years. She'd always needed to feel like she was helping down-on-their-luck musicians. Now that Helen had Lee, she focused all those feelings solely on him. In the words of Lee's niece, it was like Helen was addicted to him. As these twin addictions double-helixed in Lee and Helen's personal lives, Lee's professional reputation made a comeback. He threw his energy into creating a new sound. Formerly, Lee had been an advocate of hard bop. This was his soul in R&B-infused jazz that took over the scene in the 1950s. But by the 1970s, Lee was looking for something else. He started playing the flugelhorn, which gave his solos a darker, richer tone than his trumpet and his new compositions were all mellower than the music he played with the jazz messengers. Lee's outfit toured the East Coast, played the big cities, 
even recorded a live album at the Lighthouse Cafe in Hermosa Beach, California. And, of course, every turn of the tour was plotted, booked, and paid for by Helen. But Lee was still dissatisfied. He grew upset at Jazz's place in popular music. Even with a towering reputation, he struggled to book big venues. Lee felt it reflected the space Black people occupied in American society. Jazz artists, who were often Black musicians, were relegated to small halls, whereas white rock and roll acts like Elvis Presley sold out arenas performing Black music. So Lee felt he needed to join the Black activist community to fight for better representation, and he thought he knew just who to target. On August 27, 1970, Merv Griffin hosted his talk show in a Manhattan studio. His interviewee, an English actor, was in the middle of complaining about the scarcity of New York jazz clubs when a sharp, shrill whistle came from the audience. Lee Morgan led a group of jazz musicians on stage, blowing whistles and playing flutes. The studio descended into musical chaos as the house band tried to play over them. The protesters mounted the stage with signs painted with slogans like, Stop the Whitewash Now, Hire More Black Artists on TV. This was the Jazz and People's Movement, a civil rights offshoot that followed the straightforward philosophy of Malcolm X. Protesters used the Merv Griffin show to make it clear they wanted more space for Black musicians on television. During the protest, Lee even went backstage to speak with CBS executives about getting more Black faces playing Black music on their shows. As he remarked to a reporter after the fact, jazz is the only real American music, but how often do you see jazz musicians in front of the camera? Just as Lee was getting more outspoken in his external life, he grew more independent in his relationship with Helen. Now that he was back on his own feet, he grew resentful of her controlling behavior. He wanted out, and he saw an opportunity in other women. Lee started seeing women closer to his age. This was an open secret. He didn't try to hide it from Helen. After wrapping up so much of her own identity in his happiness, she felt torn. It was a painful affront to the relationship she thought they'd had, that he was cheating on her. But she also felt compelled to do whatever it took to please him, including looking the other way. Still, their friends noticed a change. The two had been inseparable for years, apparently devoted to each other, but now they were getting into screaming matches in public. In one memorable incident, Lee dumped a champagne bottle over Helen's head and shouted at her to get out. Around this time, Lee started dating a younger woman named Judith Johnson. Soon enough, he was spending all his time with her, picking her up after gigs, taking her on dates, and even staying at her place to avoid Helen. But Helen wasn't stupid. She knew what was happening. And for the first time, she felt threatened. She stopped going to Lee's gigs, 
and Judith took over Helen's customary place in the front row. Most likely, Lee believed Helen would take the destruction of their relationship as she had everything else, with quiet strength and resolve. But here, Lee got her wrong. Helen was angry. After all she'd sacrificed for Lee, after she'd pulled him out of the gutter, she was enraged that this was how he'd repaid her. Her romantic love for him had twisted into an ugly possessive need. She had made him, and he was supposed to be hers. So late on February 18, 1972, Helen got herself ready for a showdown. She dressed herself up for a night on the town. Lee was playing that night at a nightclub called Slug Saloon in East Village, a gig that Helen had booked for him. And as she stuck her keys and wallet inside her purse, she caught sight of something shiny reflecting up at her. It was the silver-plated 32 caliber gun Lee had bought her for protection. She snapped the purse closed and slung it over her shoulder. Tonight, she would get Lee back. She made him what he was, and he belonged to only her. And if she couldn't have Lee, nobody could. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with part two of Helen and Lee Morgan. We'll discuss what happened at Slugs and how Helen's actions rock the jazz world. For more information on Helen and Lee Morgan, amongst the many sources we used, we found Tom Perchard's book, Lee Morgan, His Life, Music, and Culture, and Larry Rennie Thomas's book, The Lady Who Shot Lee Morgan, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Molly Quinlan, Mickey Taylor, and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.